I'm going to tell you about um, stem cells, uh, but my take today is to actually use them as a vehicle to generate uh, models of brain cancer. And so the title of the talk is IPS Derived Brain Cancer Avatars, uh, Lessons Learned and Opportunities for Therapeutic Discovery. And these are my disclosures. Um, so as uh, Kat had mentioned, I've, you know, I've been at the Ludwig Institute for many years now. Uh, and what I've been focusing on there is glioblastoma. This is the most common uh, primary brain tumor in adults. And it's about 13,000 cases per year of GBM. Now, as you can see here, the five-year survival is less than 10%. So this is a rather uh, daunting uh, cancer to treat. There are risk factors for GBM. We, we don't, know very, don't know very many. The Caucasians and Asians slightly higher than other um, populations, men slightly higher than women. Um, but that's about it. I mean, Lee-Fermini uh, syndrome also has a higher incidence of uh, GBM. So the, the prognosis for a GBM is very poor, about 14 months on, on average for survival. And that's with the uh, standard of care therapy here, the famous STOOP protocol which is temozolomide and radiation uh, following um, surgical debulking. And so this uh, protocol only led to about a two-month increase in survival for these patients. And so the question really is, you know, why is GBM so difficult to treat? And I think this could be boiled down to five main reasons. Uh, these tumors are highly heterogeneous. Both inter- and intratumoral heterogeneity is very uh, prominent and well-described for GBM. Uh, they're highly invasive, and therefore they cannot be surgically uh, cured. Uh, they're very limited in terms of their response to traditional and targeted therapy. I showed you on the previous slide that uh, traditional therapies such as uh, temozolomide has really little uh, impact. Uh, there's no early detection for GBM. You can't go into your uh, doctor annually for a physical, and they look for a GBM or any other type of glioma. And then lastly, there are limitations in the available models that we have. I mean, the old adage is we can cure a mouse, but we cannot cure humans. And so that's what I would like to tell you about today is our take on a new model system called uh, tumor avatars. Uh, this is um, uh, something that we have been uh, developing with my good colleague here in the stem cell building, uh, Gene Yeo. So why did we want to do this? Uh, and so this is a slide that illustrates the different types of models that we, that we typically use to study glioma, or GBM in, in particular, uh, mouse models, human astrocytes, and the gold standard, patient-derived uh, xenografts. And I won't go through all, the, data, all the, the bullet points here, but you can see there are advantages and limitations to each one of these models. But the, the major limitation for the gold standard, the uh, patient-derived xenograft, are, are the following, that we, we tend to lose intra-tumoral um, heterogeneity uh, when we passage these uh, models through mice or in culture, and we tend to lose things like extra-chromosomal cDNA, which is a, a very hot area of research right now. There's lack of experimental controls, and it really is not possible to look at or study longitudinal evolution, uh, evolution analysis uh, uh, type of experiments. I mean, we can infer how these tumors develop by uh, sequencing, but we really can't study it um, uh, further than that. And so as I mentioned, um, myself uh, and my postdoc, uh, Tomoyuke Koga, who's now an assistant professor, 
University of Minnesota, along with another postdoc, Shun Mickey, in my lab, uh, along with Gene and his postdoc, Alex Keim, who is now an assistant professor here at UCSD, along with uh, Sebastian uh, uh, Mark Miller, uh, came up with the following platform, which uses induced pluripotent stem cells into which we edit various combinations of driver mutations that are indicative of different subtypes of GBM. We then take these iPS cells and differentiate them into neuroprogenitor cells, a cell of origin uh, for these types of tumors using small molecules. And then we engraft these orthotopically into nod-skid animals. And invariably, between five and six months, we get these really robust uh, tumors that form, which are, are indistinguishable from human tumors. We do full workup of um, histological analysis, as well as omic analysis. And that's really much, pretty much our phase one of the, the platform I'll tell you about today. Phase two is which we're currently uh, investigating, and that is looking for uh, therapeutic vulnerabilities in the different models that we've built. And so what I hope to show you today, or convince you of today, is that these models definitely do recapitulate the mutational uh, fidelity of these tumors. We can study longitudinal evolution. Uh, they do have uh, transcriptional heterogeneity. And importantly, some of the models that we've uh, looked at do recapitulate extra-chromosomal DNA, so other, otherwise known as double minutes. So um, the first two models that we uh, generated were a proneural and a mesenchymal model. And we, we uh, consulted the, the Cancer Genome Atlas uh, data to pick the mutations that we, we wanted to uh, engineer into the iPS cells. So for the proneural model, we made a PDGF receptor A mutation, so we uh, deleted exons 8 and 9 to make that receptor uh, constitutively active. And then we also deleted uh, the P53 or TP53 uh, gene. And for the mesenchymal model, we uh, deleted uh, NF1 along with P, uh, P10. Okay, so this is our normal workflow. We make uh, serial uh, mutations in iPS cells. Uh, we confirm these mutations by um, PCR analysis because we, we, we use two guide RNAs to make uh, each mutation, so they're easy to score by PCR. Uh, then we use uh, small molecules according to the Reinhardt protocol uh, to differentiate these into neuroprogenitor cells, and we confirm that they're neuroprogenitor cells by marker analysis uh, shown here. Now, as, uh, as Vivian showed, uh, we really wanted to make sure that we were getting proper differentiation of our iPS cells. Uh, because as you know, if you inject IP, wild-type iPS cells into, let's just say, the brain, they will make teratomas. And that's exactly what our wild-type iPS cells do. You can see here, we get uh, various lineages of tumors or tissues forming in the brain. Now, if we differentiate our iPS cells efficiently into MPCs, we would we would postulate we would not get tumors being formed, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, no tumors were being formed here. So we were really uh, quite um, assured that any mutations we made in the iPS cells, if they did make tumors upon differentiation to MPCs, these were really uh, um, specifically due to the, to, the, um, to the mutations that were engineered. And so I'm just going to walk you through rather quickly that our first publication in which we um, generated the mesenchymal and the proneural models, as shown here. On average, the, uh, the models uh, make tumors in about 120 to 140 days. 
Uh, we get the typical pathology that you see for uh, GBM patients. In particular, you see pseudopalacinian necrosis. We've done other mar marker analysis uh, as validated by Bob Heb Hebner here, and uh, they, they all score as grade, grade four glioma, otherwise known as a GBM. Uh, these models are, can be serially passaged through uh, animals, as shown here. They also take on a stem cell quality by limiting dilution, so they become very stem-like upon serial passage. Uh, they have differential sensitivity to standard of care therapy. I show you here temozolomide, uh, and this is presumably due to differential expression of MGMT. And importantly, when we look at the transcriptome, this was by single-cell RNA-seq analysis, we do indeed see the intratumor heterogeneity uh, that is typically found in patients. This is very reminiscent uh, as to what's been shown by luminaries in the field, such as Mario Suva and Mariella Philbin at Mass General, where within individual tumors, you see uh, evidence of, of at least two or three different molecular subtypes, proneuroclassical and mesenchymal. We see that ex exact occurrence here in our models. And lastly, as I, as I said to you, uh, in some of the models, we see evidence of extra-chromosomal DNA amplification. In the uh, proneural model, as shown here, you can see we have these little dots that surround uh, the chromosomes, and these are double minutes, and they do replicate. If you put these cells in culture and you, and you um, treat with EDU, they do incorporate um, label into those double minutes. So we do, we do have a really good model system here to look at the origin of double minute formation. Now, uh, what do we want to do with these? Uh, one of the things uh, that Gene and I have been discussing is uh, his passion is RNA binding proteins. So we wanted to look whether uh, we could find therapeutic vulnerabilities uh, for RBPs. Uh, and why is this an uh, uh, important area to, to get into? As you know, Gene has been showing uh, that these RBPs can in, indeed be uh, druggable. Uh, RBPs have uh, multiple roles in, in a variety of indications, uh, neurodegenerative diseases. They are important for uh, granular, uh, granule uh, formation, and it's been shown that if you disrupt these granules, you can uh, over overcome some neurological diseases such as uh, Alzheimer's, et cetera. In cancer, uh, RBPs have been presumed to be important for regulating the abundance of RNA within a tumor cell. Uh, tumor cells tend to uh, have increased uh, transcriptional uh, output, and RBPs can control this RNA pollution that builds up in the tumor cells. So we figured that we can do an RBP screen and look for vulnerabilities in our various models. And this work is uh, currently being done by uh, a new postdoc in the lab, uh, Daisuke Kawauchi, along with Shun Miki, and Elliot Chen, who's a postdoc in uh, Gene's lab. And so what we've done here is to take a few of our models, the, the proneural and the mesenchymal model as shown here, uh, and Gene's uh, RBP uh, knockout library. And so far we've done in our an in vitro screen, and we clearly see RBPs which are specific in these isogenic models, both the mesenchymal and proneural, uh, some that are overlapping and others that are specific for one genotype or another. And so we're currently going through these RBPs and, and also with uh, matching PDX lines to see which ones really convey uh, therapeutic vulnerability uh, in, in according to the genotype. So I just want to turn to another uh, model that we've built another avatar model, uh, and this has to do with uh, the pediatric brain tumor, atypical teratoid 
or a rhabdoid tumor. This is a project that was uh, spearheaded by a very talented uh, student in my lab, Allison Parisian. She was part of the BMS uh, graduate program here at UCSD. And so Allison, um, we, were, we were emboldened by our successes in making GBM models, so we really wanted to turn our attention to uh, other types of models. And the, the one that we really uh, focused on is this one here, ATRT, because uh, in essence, it's, you would think it's a very easy model um, to make. It's driven by a single mutation, uh, SMARC-B1. SMARC-B1 loss is, is um, pathognomonic of all uh, ATRT. So ATRT is a pediatric brain tumor. It occurs in children typically less than three years of age. It's a rare tumor. It's about 30 cases per year in the U.S. Uh, the median survival as shown here is about 10 to 17 months, uh, and the five-year overall survival um, is about 23%. And these children are treated with uh, standard of care, which is chemotherapy and radiation, which, you, as you can imagine, is pr very harsh on the pediatric brain. And so Allison um, wanted to study this. Uh, just a little bit of uh, background about SMARC-B1. SMARC-B1 is part of the SWI-SNF complex, otherwise known as the BATH complex. Uh, BATH, uh, when it's uh, dysregulated, uh, leads to a um, uh, alteration of chromatin, and this is due to the PRC2 complex taking its place, uh, leading to decreased uh, K27 acetylation or activation marks, and an increase in, in the repressive marks, K27 trimethylation. Now why is this important? Well, uh, the bath complex regulates both uh, super enhancers as well as typical enhancers in normal cells, and this leads to a balance in control of cell identity and differentiation. Now, when you have a uh, mutation in SMARC-B1 or a deletion, this leads to a destabilization in the SMARC, in the, uh, the SWI-SNF or BATH complex, uh, leading to a residual um, uh, BATH complex only forming on the, on the super enhancers. Now, the super enhancers in, in this disease are important for self-renewal genes, whereas the typical enhancers are important for differentiation genes. So uh, Allison uh, did what we did for the GBM models, which was to delete SMARC-B1 from our IPS uh, line. Uh, and you know, this, is, this is a case where if, if the student had uh, taken a different approach or not listened to me, I think she would have had much quicker success. But when we deleted SMARC-B1 um, from IPS cells, uh, we were not able to generate any uh, um, stable cell line. So Allison is a person who is not, was not easily daunted and shows she consulted the literature and it really made sense that we were not able to delete SMARC-B1 from an IPS cell. So when you look in the mouse model, this is work by uh, uh, Han and Al, they showed that if you knock out SMARC-B1 at E1 to E5 in a conditional knockout, this was actually embryonic lethal. However, at E6 to E10, they were very um, successful at generating rhabdoid, uh, spinal rhabdoid tumors. So this indicated to us that the timing of loss of SMARC-B1 was critical for the formation of tumors. Too early was embryonic lethal, and as shown here, too late at E E11 or later, no tumors would be formed. And so uh, Allison, as I mentioned, was you know very. Um, Undaunted, so she decided to make an inducible model system. This is a hairpin knockdown system, as shown here, along with a, a rescue system 
uh, of a, a non-targetable uh, shRNA. Okay, so she was able to validate that when you knock down SMARC-B1 uh, with a dox-inducible system in iPS cells, we do indeed get uh, lethality of cells as shown here. Uh, we, we see an increase in apoptosis and a decrease in cell proliferation. Now what happens if we uh, knock down SMARC-B1 at a later time point on the way to becoming a neuroprogenitor cell as shown here? Well, there was actually no effect on the cell proliferation. These cells would grow just fine. So this suggested to us that there's probably some major differences in the transcriptional profile in cells, in iPS cells versus MPCs when you knock down SMARC-B1. And that's indeed the case. So we did RNA-seq analysis, and you can see here on the right in the Venn diagram, the Venn diagram, that there's very little overlap in the two populations of cells for their RNA uh, expression profile. So Allison decided to turn to the organoid system. So this is cerebral organoids that we've uh, heard about today. She wanted to see what is the effect of SMARC-B1 knockdown during cerebral organoid development. So she would knock down SMARC-B1 at this early time point, day zero, during the embryoid body uh, formation. And then she took time points along the way to look at the effect of SMARC-B1 during uh, uh, mature organoid formation. And this is one of those examples where a picture um, says a thousand words. When you look here on the left, the, the, the control uh, knockdown, um, you can see that there's neuroepithelial expansion. And this looks very much like the rescue uh, organoid on the right. But in the middle, you see the knockdown of SMARC-B1, this is at day 20, looks completely different. So there's no neuroepithelial expansion. And so when we looked at a neuronal uh, uh, differentiation marker, Stathman-2, you can see that in the control day 20, there is plenty of Stathman-2 being expressed, but not in the knockdown uh, organoid. And this was not due to an increase in apoptosis or a decrease in proliferation, because we looked at caspase 3 and K, uh, KI67. We saw no difference between knockdown uh, day 20 or um, the control. So are there differences in the organoid cell composition and gene expression uh, based on what we're seeing here? So Allison did single cell uh, RNA-seq analysis on three control organoids as well as three knockdown organoids. Uh, we were able to cluster um, based on cell similarity. We, we were able to cluster into 12 uh, distinguishable clusters. Uh, we were able to identify uh, many of those cell clusters by uh, cell type, such as intermediate progenitors, radial glia, neuro, neuroepithelial progenitors, and neurons. And she was able to quantify the differences in these populations in the knockdown versus the control. And you can see here on the left in the neuron, for neurons in the knockdown uh, organoids, we had a, a substantial decrease in number of neurons being formed. We also saw an increase in uh, progenitor populations. Now, none of those three progenitor populations reached uh, statistical significance, but when you take it as a whole, we, seen, we see this increase overall in progenitor cells. And when we looked um, by uh, RNA analysis, we saw clearly that there was a neuronal differentiation block in the knockdown, uh, the SMARC-B1 knockdown organoids, uh, which we don't see, obviously, in the control.
So given this, that there was a decrease in neuronal differentiation, Allison decided to do a directed differentiation protocol, just taking the iPS cells and knocking down SMARC-B1 either at day zero, before uh, they were put into differentiation media, or at the point at which they were uh, MPCs, and then look at whether we were able to get mature neurons uh, being formed. In this case, uh, we were generating peripheral neurons. And you can see quite readily when we knocked down SMARC-B1 at day zero, we were unable to achieve NCAM positive neuron formation. Whereas knocking down SMARC-B1 at a later time point at the MPC state had no effect on terminal differentiation to a neuron. And this was validated further looking at the RNA-seq data where we saw a very clear block in a neuronal marker appearance in the knockdown or uh, at knockdown at day zero, where we didn't see that in the control. Okay, so does knocking down or eliminating SMARC-B1 at this early time point lead to transformation associated with neuronal, uh, associated with changes in the neuronal uh, progenitor cell population? Uh, so uh, Allison uh, knocked down SMARC-B1 at uh, day zero, and just as been shown in the literature, when you knock down SMARC-B1, the BAF complex becomes destabilized, as shown here by Westenblatt analysis. Many of the subunits become destabilized in, in the cell. And so when we, when we look at the proliferation of these cells at day zero, we see that there's an increase, uh, quite, red, uh, quite uh, noticeable increase in proliferation. And this could be rescued with her rescue cDNA, cDNA vector as shown on this, um, on this uh, MPC growth curve. So knocking down SMARC-B1 at a very early time point of differentiation leads to an enhancement of proliferation. So we then wanted to see if, these, if this model is reminiscent of, of ATRT. So we, we collaborated with Marcel Kuhl and Pascal Johan at, in, um, in Germany. They had done an, a very large analysis of ATRT RNA-seq. Uh, so we looked at uh, our MPC um, uh, knockdown at day zero, and we saw that there was a very good correlation by uh, Pearson analysis with, uh, with their ATRT uh, RNA-seq data sets. If we had knocked down SMARC-B1 at a later time point, at the MPC uh, time point, there was no correlation. Uh, then she uh, went and looked at the progenitor populations in the organoids as shown here, and by heat map analysis, you could see that there was a pretty decent correlation with uh, ATRT signature from the, the data sets from Marcel and Pascal. And once again, by Pearson correlation, uh, this uh, was pretty convincing that the knockdown, the early time point knockdown, uh, led to a correlation with ATRT. Now, um, there are three epigenetic subgroups of ATRT, terazinase, sonic hedgehog, as well as MYC. Uh, and these can be uh, divided based on their methylation status, uh, specific transcriptional factors that uh, define them as well as subgroup uh, specific enhancers. So we wanted to see if our model system was recapitulating one of these three uh, subgroups. So uh, Johan and uh, Pascal identified which of their um, data set, which, which of their samples uh, were SA, uh, sonic hedgehog versus MIC versus terogenase, and it turned out that our model system was very close 
to uh, the Sonic Hedgehog subtype of ATRT, not only in the, uh, the directed differentiation uh, protocol, but also within the organoids. Now, lastly, uh, the last piece of data, so when we engraft these uh, cells at the early time point of differentiation into mice and the presence of doxycycline to knock down SMARC-B1, they do indeed form tumors with uh, some elements of rhabdoid formation. However, if we engraft uh, cells from a later time point of differentiation, we are not able to form tumors. So once again, this illustrates that the timing of loss of SMARC-B1 during a developmental program is important for the formation of tumors. And so I'm just going to leave you with the following thoughts. And this is, this is a, a, a phrase from Peter Dirks from Toronto and, and in reference to different types of pediatric cancers, that they are temporally restricted developmental window, windows of initiation and trap developmental states. The very uh, uh, lengthy uh, uh, phrase that he put out there, but just to suffice it to say, what we, what we found was that SMARC-B1 loss at a, at a very early um, embryonic state or a pluripotent stem cell state leads to cell death. Uh, if, if you lose SMARC-B1 or you inactivate it at a much later time point in this neuronal differentiation, there's absolutely no effect on the ability of the cells to terminally differentiate. And uh, lastly, what we found was that we get abnormal MPC proliferation uh, and leading to transformation if we knock down SMARC-B1 um, at, at, at an early time point of differentiation. And I'll just quickly mention one of my students, Clark Wang, is taking this model system and looking for drugs uh, that will force differentiation of this particular um, ATRT model. Um, so just to sum up, a small number of uh, driving mutations to determine tumor uh, phenotype. Uh, this model system, this avatar system, allows for us to look at longitudinal tumor development driven by tumor subtype mutations and lineage-restricted differentiation. And it provides, we think, a decent platform for a experimental standardization in an isogenic system, and it allows us to look for synthetic lethal um, counterparts uh, when compared to PDX models. And I um, just want to thank you for your attention. Uh, this is my fantastic lab here, and I've had a number of uh, very uh, beneficial interactions with Gene and his, um, and his crew, along with uh, a number of people in my lab who have established, established this model system. And um, thank you for your attention.